Welcome to Inside JMS, the stories behind the people who work at the Hank Greenspun School of Journalism and Media Studies. I'm Kevin Stoker, and I'm here with my colleague, Dave Norris. Great to be here, as always, my friend. And we have a special guest today, Dr. Julian Kilker, uh, member of the Hank Greenspun faculty. Hey, folks. Glad to be here. Well, Julian, I kind of want to start this off because one of the things that I just find fascinating about you is I know that kind of one of your interests, of course, your research interest is, you know, doing using photography for various things. But I'm always fascinated by the fact that you know every little in and out throughout the state of Nevada where you can go shoot photos and that you've traveled around the place, gone to really obscure places and taken photos. How did that begin? And... Uh, what do you find there? What 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 have been some really exciting finds that you've had? That's a great question. Uh, one of the things I really try and focus on, uh, as I uh, focused on teaching here and doing research, is really thinking about the gr- the great outdoors. You know, what what do we have in this state that's both fascinating, um, largely unique, and also underappreciated? And underappreciated, I think, is a is a really key theme. Um, so at the moment, I'm on a, involved with a couple of organizations. One is Friends of Basin and Range, which is in central Nevada. And so in that area, for example, there are a lot of really good locations that you can go to that are really off the beaten path. And in fact, I have um, a photograph that's up on my website, and I can give information about that later on if you want to see. Yeah, but, that'd be great. But you can see an image of one of the locations I'm talking about, um, which is so remote that there's no sense of human contact up there. The only sense of human contact is the actual dirt road that you had to drive on. Um, but there no, there's no road noise. There's no artificial lighting. There are not even any overflights from airplanes because you're near the Nevada test site, which doesn't allow overflights. Um, so this type of area, all you see to the south, about I don't know, 150 miles, 200 kilometer-ish, is, is a, a little sort of dome of light to the south, and that's Las Vegas. So that's how far away you are. And being in those sorts of places that are really remote with, you know, where you really feel like you're on your own, you can really appreciate the environment, is an example of one of the natural spaces. I mention this location because um, I think most people looking at this during the daytime would would find it sort of, you know, it's sort of pretty. There's some interesting, you know, little hills and things here, but it's not beautiful in the traditional sense. For me, the real beauty out in Nevada is oftentimes at dawn and dusk when, you know, things are, when the light is changing, when it gets really interesting. And that's when I do most of my photography as well. Um, there are also other places near to Las Vegas that I can talk about that are more accessible. Some areas that have beautiful overviews of the city. Um, there's something up near Bootleg Canyon, which is actually yeah, yeah. over on the east side of town uh, near Boulder City. That's a really lovely spot. And I think um, a lot of locals have gone up there probably at some point and looked over. You basically look over rolling hills going off into the distance, and there's Las Vegas in the distance. And you can see the entire city, the entire valley. And at the same time, if it's a Friday night in particular, you've got the planes coming down right over you on the incoming flight path. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I have another photo here of that environment that I brought with me, which sort of brings <laughs> together the idea of visuals and data, uh, which I can talk about a little bit later as well. But that's the sort of location that I really appreciate. So how did you get into photography in the first place? I've always been interested in in the basics of photography, um, but I didn't come back to it until digital photography 
was relatively easy to do because one of my themes throughout my, my career and, and my hobbies is the idea of iterative design, doing things over and over and essentially <coughs> optimizing them in the process. And that's hard to do and expensive with traditional photochemical photography. You end up using a lot of film and then you have to wait a week or two or three you know, to, to get your, your prints back. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to optimize based on that. One of the key features of digital photography is that it, you get immediate feedback. You can see what's going on, you can optimize, you can fine tune. And that probably started around um, maybe 2005 or so where I really came back to it. Digital cameras were getting good enough and cheap enough um, that I could start experimenting. And I could also start doing low light photography. The sensors were getting good enough at that time um, that you could take uh, cameras and shoot in low light and start seeing things quite differently. And again, the desert in particular, the Southwest, I think is much more interesting um, in low light conditions. Um, so the photograph that I just showed Kevin a moment ago is uh, of a series of planes. It's the flight paths coming into what was then McCarran Airport. It's now Harry Reid Airport. And you've got all these flight paths coming in, the lights of the planes coming in in this direct line. And I basically opened the shutter and had it open for 45 seconds as each plane, it was basically triggered by each plane coming in, but there's one plane that seems a little lost <laughs> and it's heading off in the wrong direction <clears throat> and it quickly reasserts itself and works its way into um, the normal flight path to land at the airport. So for me, that's a great example of, um, of not doing infographics, of taking you know, quantitative data and then visualizing it with a chart or you know, something like that, but actually having the original data being in visual form and representing it in a way that's relatively easy to understand. What I love about this image, and Julian, if it would be okay, we can obviously talk about the logistics of this later, but you know, we post all of these episodes on the UNLV website. I'd love to include this on the sure. podcast post page, uh, just so listeners can see what we're referencing. But what I love about that is if you're familiar with Las Vegas, even if you've only visited, we're all familiar with the Luxor beam into the sky. And what's fascinating is you don't see Las Vegas generally in this picture, but you see the light. Mm -hmm. And so automatically, if you know, there's some geographic landmark to this. Yeah. And so you can, you can immediately picture where you are when you're taking this picture. It's an incredible photograph. Yeah, yeah. There's another one. This one is actually at an exhibit that was uh, sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities and Nevada Humanities and so on. So this got, this was sort of the centerpiece of, of, a, of a large exhibit that looked at visuals and data. Um, I have another piece called Annie and the Shaman, which was shot up near that area that I mentioned that's remote from mm -hmm. Las Vegas. And that particular place, it's near Mount Irish, which has these wonderful petroglyphs, this rock art that's just ancient and, and really when you go there there's a certain peacefulness and, and you really feel like you're sharing this space with you know previous generations who are obviously no longer around. It's a beautiful location and I ended up shooting a, a photo there that took a long time to, to, uh, to prepare. I had to go up multiple times and, and really set it up correctly. Um, but because near that location is where some of the atomic testing took place, I went into the atomic testing archives um, pulled out some footage, pulled out some audio data. And so this ended up being a multimedia exhibit that's essentially um, a reflection on the quality of data, the uses of data, what's missing in data. Essentially, did, did you see this? Uh, you're nodding, mm -hmm. Dave. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Dave, Dave saw this piece. There was a little audio station next to it, and you could push the buttons and hear the original audio recordings. And in the transcripts of this explosion, there's the countdown that you would expect. Mm -hmm. 
and then uh, there is a buzzing sound, which is the actual initiation, the ignition of the explosion. And then there's a rumbling as the blast wave comes closer and closer to where the, uh, the observers are. And there's some rather strong language, actually, as people are, are hit in the chest with this really strong wave, which were later removed in the actual transcripts. And for me, that was an interesting commentary on authenticity, on removing some of the power of that moment as well. And so I ended up taking that location. I had the moon coming up. It had this sort of echo of, a, of, a, of an explosion. But then I had a, the transcript basically um, light painted on location uh, as, part of the, um, as part of the piece. And uh, Senator Reed came by and looked at it, and he started talking with me about Searchlight Nevada and growing up and seeing the blasts off in the distance. Um, but that's a very powerful piece, and that went on a tour along with the, the rest of that particular exhibit uh, contributed by other people um, around Nevada. Uh, but it got a lot of attention. I got more feedback from that and more commentary and people leaving notes. I had an online forum where people could leave responses and so on. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to really think about how do we interact with history in Nevada? How do we interact with things that might be unpleasant? How do we deal with data? How do we think about the quality of data? And if you've looked at any explosions, uh, in terms of the historical footage, or it's used in a movie you've seen, they have a little, you know, atomic blast, maybe in Terminator 2, or, <laughs> for example. Um, there's this fake out because they actually sync up the audio and the explosion. So it's as if you were right next to the explosion. They happen, happen simultaneously, whereas in reality, you'd be at a great distance if you were to survive. And there'd be, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds of delay. And so what ends up seeming fake, there's no sound when there's a blast, is actually a real sort of POV experience. So I use that actually in the methods class to talk about perspective, POV, the idea of triangulation, mm -hmm. of having multiple data sources. So for me, working with multiple types of media, but then linking it back to original data is a way to help people reflect on the larger issues of, of doing research, of working with data, of critiquing data, of authenticating it, uh, for example. Let's 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 go back and find out about you. Tell me about you know where you grew up and kind of what led you to you know uh, an academic career. Mm. Tell me you know about your family and everything. Kind of give us some background. I'm happy to talk about my my career and work. Um, let's see, I was born in California many years ago um, <laughs> and ended up traveling uh, a fair amount. My parents worked uh, internationally, so I grew up in in different areas. And by the time I came back to the U.S. Uh, for college, uh, I was on a science track. I was a physics uh, major and ended up doing a, a thesis on um, actually data analysis on, um, <laughs> and, and uh, ended up building a uh, speech recognition system. And this was relatively early on when this was tough to do. I had to do um, uh, machine language programming. This is, this is in your undergraduate? Undergraduate, then, yeah. So and this was your bachelor's thesis? This is my bachelor's thesis. And was, where was this at? What school? This was at a small school in Portland uh, called Reed College. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up writing in machine code. So this is really fast, you know, uh, low-level code. It's really tough to do. Um, but I learned how to do it. And I was programming something that was um, dissecting audio samples. So it's what's relatively easy to do now that we have faster processors and faster computers. Um, but I was able to disentangle. It's, it's basically what Siri does, but of course, much at a much more sophisticated level. I was doing a very basic version of this. Um, and I was learning how to do essentially frequency analysis. And so really interesting program um, that I went through. And when I finished that, I was um, 
interested in teaching. I'd actually been teaching since I was 16 at a computer um, um, business uh, because this business was selling early personal computers and parents wouldn't buy them for their kids unless the kids learned how to use them because they were very expensive at the mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. And so they hired me to teach the kids and I basically learned how to teach doing that, walking them through basic things like this. And so when I left, uh, when I graduated, I finished the thesis and um, I decided to, to teach physics and, and math and I joined the Peace Corps. So I went to Kenya in East Africa and um, taught at a small rural school with no infrastructure, well, no Western infrastructure, no electricity, no running water, you know, um, and uh, taught sciences. And that was fascinating. It was an incredible experience because I learned how to work with minimal resources um, for basically two and a quarter years. Um, wow. And, and part of our job as well was when we weren't teaching was to work on side projects and development projects, uh, community projects, community organization. And so I learned a lot through that about essentially the use of technology in international development contexts and how oftentimes things would be brought over often from the U.S. but also other countries and sort of dropped, parachuted in. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you could use this tractor, but then it's hard to use a tractor in this context. They weren't really optimized for the location. So I learned a lot about technological design, about program management. Um, and when I came back to the U.S., I worked in Washington, D.C. for a while at International Public Health Organization as their uh, public information officer, essentially. I put out their publications. So you, you hadn't had a background in, uh, you know, public relations or anything like that. You came out of the sciences. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but yeah. and then why then did they hire you to do public information then? Because um, when I went back to D.C., a lot of Peace Corps volunteers go back to D.C. There's a very strong network there. Okay. Um, I basically made contacts, and one of the, the heads of one of the organizations had been a Peace Corps volunteer. Also, it happens to be in Kenya, so networking is always really important. Um, but I'd worked on some projects as a teenager in public health, actually. So I had a public health background. Um, I had a basic writing background, and I also had experience working with software. And <laughs> then desktop publishing was starting to take off. Yeah, yeah. And working with timing. laser printers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And after I did that for a while, there was a lot of sort of change in the organization. I ended up moving into technical writing back on the West Coast, managing translation projects in multiple languages. And then um, I started in that environment, one of the, the, the most, I think, um, positive and um, just fascinating environments to work in. They basically saw me working on these projects and asked me to write um, essentially a small booklet on the importance of translation, the importance of localization and globalization, which is basically designing documents mm -hmm. and user interface systems so they can be translated into different languages, optimizing them beforehand so you save money on the translations. Um, I was managing pro um, projects in French, Spanish, Italian, and German. Um, and I had colleagues that were doing Japanese and um, various Chinese dialects because I, I couldn't handle those areas. But I would manage them and work with really high-quality translators who would check each other's work, so I would step in and help out with some stuff, although I didn't know the languages necessarily all that well. I was helping out um, on the sort of the, the managerial side. And I started getting into design issues. How do you design documents? What are some of the cultural issues? And that tapped back into my you know, Peace Corps experience. Mm -hmm. I started going to the local university library and finding resources as I was writing these pamphlets and these sort of um, 
arguments for investing in a high quality job in terms of localization and globalization. And um, that got me into the research side. That's where they, they looked at me and they said, you know, you're really enjoying going off to this research <laughs> library on your own time and doing this. Have you thought about applying to graduate school? And that's when I went off to graduate school. I know you speak a lot of languages. Talk to us about how many languages you speak. I don't speak that many languages. <clears throat> I speak, you know, some French and a little bit of German, and my Swahili is fading, has faded, I would say, largely, although I can say a couple of things yeah. in that language. Yeah. Um, but I think it's more having experience in those languages that's really important to be able to pick things up mm -hmm. as well. But, um, yeah, it's it's been really really helpful and useful to to have access to those different experiences and to bring those different experiences also back into the classroom I would argue right, right. so one of the projects we have coming up in one of my classes is to critique um, a technology and I'm using technology very broadly here so I call it a finding from the field go out and find something that that is challenging and, and sort of analyze it in terms of the concepts that we're looking at and um, it could be a media-related technology, but I'm not holding them to that necessarily. If mm -hmm. something really gets them excited, then you know, <clears throat> as long as the concepts translate, I'm happy with it. And a lot of times these en end up being culturally related. They're cultural assumptions about how something is used or should be used um, that don't necessarily hold um, with other groups of people who might have to actually use the technology. So that's where the, the POV issues come into, mm -hmm. to relate, mm -hmm. the perspectives come into to play again. Yeah. So. Yeah, so grad school obviously took place. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, grad school is interesting. I um, I looked at multiple places and applied and had, had some options that looked really interesting. Um, but I ended up going to, uh, to Cornell because it was a large um, campus with lots of very different um, subjects that were available. The founder of Cornell, Ezra Cornell, has a statue on the quad and he basically says, it says, you know, imprinted on the bottom of the statue, it says, I would found an institution where any person can study any subject. And so that ended up being surprisingly relevant down the road. It was an early institution that invited women to come in. It's an early in institution that invited uh, other um, less represented uh, minorities to participate. So it was a very, um, welcoming institution and it also encouraged um, its students its graduate students to explore classes in different fields so nominally I was a, in a communication department so you did major in communication there nominally I was in the communication department but I took many of my classes in science and technology studies mm -hmm. I was a TA over in the engineering program and I took a lot of classes in anthropology as well and some in psychology as well so but then that, you got your master's yeah. there and then your PhD there too? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What was your yeah. dissertation? Well, my master's. So it, it was, these were chances to, to look at different um, topics and different uh, methods. So for my master's, I did a really intensive survey on privacy and surveillance concerns mm -hmm. among international graduate students, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and then at the the doctoral level, I got really interested in, this is going back to sort of design issues, um, I got really interested in how something really obvious was designed, and that was email, essentially, as a communication system, as a communication technology. And you look at email, 
even then you look at email and it's, it's not the most exciting thing. It's like, yes, I am sending a memo and I click send and it goes. But behind it, there's, there's this uh, really interesting invisible set of standards that make this operate. And there's a whole system of proposing, defining, and validating standards behind that process that I was really fascinated in. So I got access to some early archives. I got access to some of the earliest email messages that were sent um, starting in some in the late 60s, but largely in the early 70s where they were using early versions of email systems to actually negotiate what needed to be done to improve the very system they were using. Mm -hmm. So this was a classic case of iterative design and it was particularly notable because the early email systems were being developed by primarily graduate students, it turned mm -hmm. out. The PIs had the, the funding, but mm -hmm. uh, um, the graduate students were doing the work and they were based at multiple organizations with very different backgrounds. So there was some military connection, there was some research university connection, there was some private industry, there were different types of universities that were involved. Um, and so was, this was basically emerging out of the ARPANET days. The ARPANET was the sort of the precursor to the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and there were different cultures at these different institutions that they had to negotiate. So buried within these discussions, there were some technical discussions, but there were a shocking amount, to my view, at the time of socio-technical concerns assumptions about how would this be used, who would use it, um, therefore what standards and fields do we need to store in terms of information. One example was at that time, um, <coughs> most people in the field were male and most um, people who wrote memos were secretaries, were female. And so the standards documents were talking about, well, it's going to be from somebody, that's the male person who asked the message to be sent, but then should we have a typed by field? And she, the, the basically the woman who wrote the message should be, you know, bumped into that. And there, among the graduate students, there was huge pushback about, well, this is a technology that's going to allow people to, to send their own messages. You know, this is not going to be a traditional sort of secretarial pool, sort of very traditional office environment. And by the way, why do we have these other fields that reflect an office environment? This is a more informal, fast-paced type of situation. So these, these documents were degendered. They were, you know, forward-looking. And they were addressing concerns about spam, about inappropriate language, about sort mm. of community standards early on. And some of the decisions they made have stayed with us to the present day. Other ones, which they tried to address, never made it into the actual standards and were um, dealing with the consequences to this day mm -hmm. in terms of how to handle <laughs> spam being, being one of them and how to secure messages. Well, so, so it ended up being a, a really, really, um, it, was, it was technically a case study, but I had access to years of email messages, which I had to root through and look for patterns in and, it was, mm -hmm. and, and you know, devise into threads in standards that were evolving during the entire time. So I couldn't just say search for, you know, this, and it would be a standardized element in all the messages. That is, those elements shifted during the course of the multi-year project. Hmm. Well, what's so fascinating about this is you talk to most of our students, and you ask them, what does CC actually stand for in an email, right? Yeah. And the idea of a carbon copy is just mm -hmm. right over the head. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm certain yeah. kind of in... in getting to dig deep into mm -hmm. the formulation and the design of email, mm -hmm. just how much inspiration was taking from what you said, just sending yep. memos from one yeah. to the next. 
it got me really interested. So that that whole process, which you know, of course, like anybody doing doing you know a dissertation, I immersed myself in for quite a while. It really got me thinking about the design of other communication systems. So what cultural values are embedded in them? Which ones seem to be invisible? Because it's just a technology. You know, this is the way the technology operates. We have certain assumptions, but they're they're buried in there. And which ones are can be challenged when you're dealing with standards? When you're dealing with software, you can push back. You can say this this you know system doesn't work for me. It might work for you, but it it doesn't work for me. It needs to have these other characteristics. And software, at least in theory, can be shaped relatively easily. It's not a tangible piece of hardware, of a physical artifact that needs to be rebuilt or modified that's you know difficult to do. You can push out standards updates very quickly, as we've seen recently, over the net, right? Twitter can sort of, you know, you can have propagated cha changes propagate rel relatively rapidly. So that got me really interested in larger issues of design and thinking back to the translation experiences and the, the languages and so on. I started thinking about what assumptions are built in that... Um, are creating problems. So one of the pieces I wrote relatively recently um, is called Beyond Accessibility. It's in, in First Monday. It was sort of a fun place to put it. But it addresses a deeper issue of how do how do we address exceptions? There's, an, there's a, a focus now on dealing with make, maybe 80, trying to solve 80% of the cases or maybe 90% of the cases if we're really lucky. But what happens to edge cases? And oftentimes edge cases are viewed as problematic. Oh, we shouldn't pay attention to, to people who write like this or type like this or communicate like this or from this background or in this location because that's, there are very few of them and that's too hard to solve. The classic example is being left-handed or right-handed, right? If you're left-handed, there are a lot of things that are poorly designed for left-handed use, even things that seem really obvious, like how cupboards open, mm -hmm. obviously scissors, but there are a lot of other things that come <clears throat> out of this and left-handed people are 10% of the population more or less. So I see that more broadly um, in the sense of how can we take advantage of those exceptions? How can we listen to them and learn from them to try and go to roll back in those design processes? And even more interesting are the corner cases where you've got two sets of edges. And this come, becomes critical um, if you're dealing with people with different language backgrounds, people of different age, uh, in different age situations. So if you're an elderly person now and you have to file your taxes, how can you do that anymore? If you have to do a hold mail with the post office, how do you do that? Everything is online or it's on a cell phone. It can be hard to use if you have a corner case of age, which has maybe cognitive um, aspects, but also maybe arthritis. It's hard to push these buttons. So that starts getting really interesting. It's, it's fascinating to me that uh, there seems to be a pattern here in that, uh, you know, you're talking about the corners of Nevada. You're talking about the corners of technology and technology usage. It seems to me you, you kind of have this fascination with... Uh, you know, places that people don't usually look or questions that people usually don't ask. I'm interested in what's overlooked, absolutely. And I think in our, our field, the larger media field, we tend to focus on content by and large, right? What Let's do a content analysis of this TV show. Let's produce content and so on. I'm interested in the containers in which that content goes, the structures of the systems that support that content and therefore the constraints and the opportunities that are available. 
if you look at it. So absolutely, I, I think that um, the less looked at items are really valuable. Somebody has to look at them. Somebody I mean, if everybody did it, they wouldn't be <laughs> overlooked. But um, I think it's very valuable to look at the, the mass characteristics as well. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important also to pay attention to those little elements that are unusual and underappreciated and maybe have something to, to tell us that we can bring back. It's a little sort of treasure hunt to find things that you can bring back. Maybe we could call it a movie, Kilker in the Shadows. <laughs> <laughs> makes me sound like a vampire. I don't know. <laughs> Julian, talk to us a little bit about the courses you teach. You're teaching sure. philosophy. You've been a teacher mm-hmm. almost your whole life. Yeah. How has that changed as you've matured as a professor, as you've mm-hmm. matured as just a scholar generally? I'd love to hear about your teaching. Yeah, it's certainly changed a lot since since I started. Um, there are the obvious changes in the field and with technologies and in styles of teaching. Um, and I've certainly learned a lot along the way. So I would say if, if we look at the present day, the major uh, areas that I focus on now, the major techniques I focus on now are applying the design issues that I've mentioned to you to my classes themselves. I see my classes as living things that are constantly being updated and revised, that are being iteratively designed, not just by me, but by the students, by the student comments, by the student um, work that I see, and by the discussions I have with them. So sometimes people might not be able to, to articulate what they see as being most or least valuable in a class or most problematic or least problematic or interesting. Um, but I'm able to sort of think about that and think about how can I redesign these elements and for those purposes online courses are particularly interesting because in a way I'm going back to the technical writing background and I'm saying okay I've got a system here I've got students who are taking part I've got documents that I'm preparing I've got workflows that I'm, I'm trying to try out I've got experiments I want to run each semester to see what works and if it works I'll keep it if it doesn't work I'll do something new so I'll never have a perfect class but I'll always be aspiring to improve things and change things to keep keep up with what's going on. And of course in our field, things are constantly changing anyway. So the idea when Kevin and I talked a while back about online education, and I gave the impression that I wasn't a, a fan of it, what I wasn't a fan of was how it was being taught then, which was basically video recording lectures, putting them online, and then having something that was basically frozen in time that would be used for a long time until it was clearly out of date, and then you record a new set of lectures and put them online. And that just doesn't wash anymore. You can't do that. Um, So I'm looking at at designing things in such a way that they can be updated, they can be really current, um, but also trying to adapt to changing communication styles, um, which are evolving really rapidly, as we know, with social media and, and so on. So the question is, how can I get students to be professional, to produce professional work, but maybe not do it in the traditional way? Which, you know, I can... uh um, I can really come in with a, a point that you've been successful at that to, to a lot of a big extent because you are teaching a class. So Julian teaches uh, JMA, or journalism uh, 435 research methods. Now, at every university I've ever been at, and I've taught it before too, it's probably where people receive the lowest evaluation students hate the class typically do not like the class 
Um, a lot of times you throw in your brand new faculty members into that class because really that's about the only skill they have is research methods at the time. Uh, <clears throat> but what I've marveled at, marveled at in uh, regards to Julian is that he has taken this, put it online, and the students are really getting a great experience, and their your evaluations are really strong. And it must be a lot to do with this philosophy you have, but, but you know, what what has kind of been the epiphany for you that's come along with that, that's allowed you to be successful, teaching what typically is a very dull. Um, Don't oversell it here, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I think the epiphany for me was being able to break away a couple of years ago. I was getting increasingly frustrated by the textbooks that were available. There's some very good methods books out there, technically speaking, but they're not as engaging as I would wish them to be, nor are they focused enough on I think the specifics of our field and our students in particular who combine both more journalistic interests but also more, more PR advertising interests. And I wanted to do something that combined the both of them together, which meant a lot more examples, a lot of specific examples from which I could draw so, you know, some of the, the key elements out and discuss them in class. Um, I also switched software systems. I was using some some pretty high-end and frustrating stats software, which the students did reasonably well at, but I don't want to use, my philosophy now is I don't want to use software that students don't have easy access to when they graduate. I want them mm -hmm. to learn skills mm -hmm. in class mm -hmm. that they can use immediately. And I was getting emails from students saying, hey, we used SPSS, uh, I found it useful, I'm at a new job now, and they have no experience with this. I'm going to be doing this with data. It was, it was something like evaluating sales of, of um, actually audio tracks. Um, globally, and they're working for a licensing firm, and they went. They, were, they said, "Should I buy this software license?" And I was like, "Maybe, but then it'll, it'll be a challenge." And so, what I started doing was, I started saying, "How can I make this class address the core methods, concepts, and issues, but make it much more applicable in the real world of our students, both now to get them on board, to, to get them to make that extra effort." to really engage with the class, but also to help them understand why it's so important um, to focus on these topics for the real world after they graduate. Um, we have, there's a, a focus in journalism now on data journalism, and even that, I think that's better than, than the traditional research methods focus. Um, and you know, I, I grew up, I used Babby, which is one of the classic social science textbooks for years. Right. The cost was getting out of control. It was $120 for a used copy, which I, I didn't want the students to spend. So I essentially wrote my own textbook. And I use elements of open source textbooks for some of the, the specific chapters. Um, but most of it is, is my own material with examples. That's what seems to have really worked, is making it applicable, practical, and really listen to what the students, uh, observe what the students are doing and listen to what they're saying about what they're doing. So I've, I've probably changed that course every year, certainly. And sometimes there'll be minor modifications every semester, but probably every year I've done something major to that class uh, to make it what it is now. And um, yeah, it's gone through a lot of changes. So, but I'm I'm pretty happy with it now. Um, the challenge is, you know, as in that class I focus on survey design and things that lead to survey design. One of the challenges now is is a, lar a large issue for us in in our field 
which is now that everybody can do surveys easily using online resources, we're swamped with surveys, often very poorly designed surveys. So my angle these days is to say, um, let's talk about the overall sort of philosophy of doing these things. Why are we doing them? How can we do them well? And I talk about the idea of surveys as being sort of, because I worked on it for my, my master's in great detail, um, it's a discussion, it's an interview process, a good survey. It's written in a friendly, flowing manner. It's not a series of questions that demand information from you, from the people that you, your respondents. And so we talk about the larger issue, and my goal is when they get out there, there might be completely different software, there might be different goals, uh, surveys might not be done the same way, but the overriding idea of I'm trying to get information from people, I'm trying to do it in a friendly way, I'm trying to make it worth their while, not necessarily bribe them you know, by giving them five bucks or a coupon or something, but I'm trying to basically say, here's why it would benefit you to give us information, and I'd be happy to share the results with you at the end, you know, if, mm -hmm. if that would help you participate so that you can be part of a community trying to do something useful and argue for, for it. So I talk about the, the intro that you write in the survey. It's a writing process, right? You have to be a good writer to write a good survey. So it's, it's a larger sort of almost philosophical move. And that's what I think has made the class m be perceived as more useful, more authentic, mm -hmm. and more practical um, among most of the students. Yeah. You pay attention to changes in technology, changes in media, how the two of those intersect. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think in the past 10 years or even the past 10 minutes, right, what, what really excites you? Is there a new technology? Is there a new form of something that's existed for a while? What excites Julian Kilker today about things that are happening or things that may be on the horizon? I think one area that has the most potential for what's going on is a better understanding of computational thinking. There's an organization called Code.org, which helps school kids get good at programming because Silicon Valley said we need more programmers out there. So in all the middle schools, you've got kids <coughs> who are doing programming, right? So they're coming in more sophisticated. That's another methods class issue, by the way, is I have to ramp up the sophistication of the tools and how mm. I approach them. I usually use spreadsheets now instead of SPSS, but I'm ramping up how in what ways I'm using them and how sophisticated <laughs> the, the, the goals are for using them. So I'm starting to see students coming in who are more comfortable working with data, who are more comfortable processing data, who are thinking maybe slightly computationally. And for me and for our students, what I think is really critical and what excites me are some of the innovations in what's called no-code programming. So the idea that you don't have to be a nerd and write that machine language code I was talking about earlier, which is you know really challenging. Um, and if you don't do it for a while, you forget all the details and you have to have all your commas in the right place. And it's just, it's, it's really tough. The grammar is difficult. There's been a move to do programming that's often visual now, where you basically say, I want to do these things. I'm going to throw these blocks up on the screen and draw lines between them. So conceptually you're programming, but without the actual pain of doing it. And so that's called no-code or low-code programming. I think there's a lot of potential there for people to start saying, I want to do this. I want to design a system that, um, that records my podcast um, automatically or easily and then prepares it and drops it onto my server and does this and then gathers sort of analytics related to it. Um, that sort of stuff can now be done more realistically 
with tools that exist that can be sort of stuck together with no-code programming. I have a visual processing tool on my computer in front of me that lets me bring in images and do certain operations on them as, as sort of like a workflow, almost like an org chart type look. Mm -hmm. um, and that's no-code programming right there. Um, so that, that I see is where the sophistication lies in helping our students do more creative but more structured work. And that's the challenge for us, I think, is to find some really neat things to do, and then how do you repeat that process? And then, of course, if you want to improve that process along the way, and if you're doing it in a really, like, oh, HTML, CSS, you're doing it in a very nerdy, techy way, and then you know Python and so on and so forth, it gets really hard to keep up with that stuff. So I see that as something really interesting. Some of those innovations that are coming out are, are pretty intriguing. In terms of the hardware, there's the stuff is moving so quickly uh, in the photography world. Um, we're seeing a lot of things with um, you know the AI influenced technologies that that are all the rage right now. Dolly, Dolly two, and then Chat GPT, which works with the text elements of describing something and then it being represented visually. I'm really interested in. Um, when cameras become conceptual. So if I take a picture, so I'm gonna take a picture of Kevin here sitting right across from me, um, and I'm not storing an image file of Kevin. What I'm storing is a description of a man sitting at a table, mm -hmm. and then there might be some little modifications and characteristics, but it'll build this image off of a model of a person sitting here, but it will be described in sort of very highly compressed data, because then I can take that information, I can modify it easily. I can run it through a filter, again, with this low-code, no-code mm -hmm. possibility, and then produce other images um, based on that capture. But the capturing method and the processing pipeline, I think, are going to be shifting dramatically. Let's start with the hair color. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, we can, we can do that. So so Dolly 2 is, is similar to, to what we're hearing about with uh, the chat GPT, where you can ask it to write something. Um, you know, write me a memo about something that produces a pretty credible right, memo. Right, right. Uh, overly confident and often with a lot of problems. CNET was just caught writing articles, if you guys saw the news about this. Writing articles using an AI assistant, and it was very confidently written, but there were some serious technical issues with them, including some math errors, which is something I address in the methods class, about watching out for those things. But um, but Dolly 2, what you do is you give a description, and you say, you know, draw me a picture, create a picture of a certain characteristic, and it will try and create something, and it sort of comes into focus through iterations. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is you can seed that picture with an actual picture of you. So if I have a picture of you, Kevin, I can say, okay, put Kevin on the top of the Eiffel Tower, or put Kevin surfing in Maui or, or something like that. And it will do a really good job because it has lots of pictures of people surfing in Maui and lots of people. And they put all this together. And that's what you train on. And that's what's getting really interesting now. I do remember a couple of years ago in our department, we had Adobe visiting. Do you remember this? I do. Dave, mm -hmm. they came in and they were talking about some of their innovations, which were sort of precursors to this considerable, <laughs> considerably far back, considerably more basic. And they neglected to pay attention to us being a journalism department also. So they were talking about all the creative work you could do with visuals, but ignoring the challenge of authenticity mm. and validating data. And that was a really interesting sticking point for the faculty meeting when with these guest speakers coming in. Um, and that's a real tension, of course, that we're gonna be coming into is how do you ensure the validity of data in any format, in any media, 
and it's interesting to to look at what endeavors are taking place there. But it's Adobe sort of approaching it from the two pronged uh, situation of we're going to give you some extra tools, uh, but then we're going to have to sell you new tools to fix the problem we just created. <laughs> and that's the story of technology. So, Julian, we've really enjoyed visiting with you. Mm-hmm. If there was a question that we should have asked you that we haven't, <laughs> what would it be? And then answer it too. <laughs> well, the second part is the difficult one. Um, one question I really like that I can't possibly answer is, is what Kurt Vonnegut talks about. He says, what's the purpose of people? And so if somebody can come up with an answer to that, <laughs> I would love to hear it. So I think our purpose here is, is to help people gain a larger understanding of the world and appreciate it and operate within it effectively. But I think there are a lot of other possibilities. You're right. That's great. I have really enjoyed having this chance to get to know you a little bit more. I'm excited for the people who will be listening to this podcast at some point to have this opportunity as well to know the various parts of your background. I learned a lot today, Kevin. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. I, uh, Julie and I, I, I sometimes marvel at your ability to keep up with what's happening technologically wise. And, um, and, uh, and I, th- I think it was really interesting that you were in the Peace Corps. I, uh, you know, I always w- wanted to be in the Peace Corps, but to go to Kenya and have those experiences, I can see that they've re- very much shaped your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's not a, certainly not a week I don't, I don't think back to some elements of it. And uh, it's, I have very good friends from that group. One thing I didn't mention briefly in, in graduate school is I was walking down to the major research library on campus and I started running to people who'd been in my same Peace Corps group. Mm-hmm. So to have people from the other side of the world <laughs> who, and then this is not immediately afterwards, right? A couple of years later, who've made essentially the same decision to learn more, to come back to school, to try and mm-hmm. sort of build on that experience, and then end up in the same place without knowing that, you know, that each of us would be doing that was, says something about the experience, I think. Would the younger Julian at that time, looking at you now, what, would he be surprised or would he this kind of like, Wow, this is this is exactly what I should be doing with my life. I don't think you'd be surprised. I think you'd be really curious and say, "Go do more." Go do more. <laughs> I love that. That's a good way to end That's this. A good way to end. Julian, thank you so much, my friend. Thanks, Julian. Sure, no problem. Enjoy being here.